When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, Ray here. I would like to once again encourage you to check out best-selling author Simon Scarrow's brisk and chilling new historical mystery set in 1940 Berlin, Dead of Night. Criminal police inspector Horst Schenka is a seasoned and conflicted detective. But what he is not is supportive of the Third Reich, thus putting a target on his back. And soon the Nazi brass are warning him to shut down his investigations into a series of murders that initially seem unconnected. In the process, he will uncover a stomach-churning SS scheme, and nothing ends well when dealing with the SS. Detective Schenke's world is already one of terror, fear, murder, and power by any means necessary, and those same techniques will be turned against him. Simon Scarrow is a London Sunday Times number one best-selling historical thriller author who has sold more than five million books. His gift for accuracy, tension, and dread will leave you breathless. Dead of Night from Kensington Publishing is available everywhere books are sold. Hello. And thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 455, Race to the Stalin Line. Last time, we watched as Army Group South launched its attack against Russia's southern region, specifically when Reichenau's 56th and 62nd Infantry Divisions on the far left flank of Army Group South crossed the River Bug that morning, then advanced some 14 kilometers which is, again, impressive for infantry alone. But, as the saying goes, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword, or in this case, almost dies. In their enthusiasm to push on, two battalions from this group went far ahead of everyone else, enough to no longer have support. Soon, they were the ones trapped in a pocket of their own making. Fortunately for these men, the regimental commander, Colonel von Erdmannsdorf, put together a plan and a rescue group, and before the night was over, the two wayward battalions were back where they belonged. Yet that wasn't the only attack that did not go according to plan. We've already covered the initial attack to take control of the Shimshell Bridge that failed early that morning before 4 a.m., but that was overcome later that day with relatively few losses. It was not the same in other areas. As we saw, two battalions had to be rescued on the German left. But even before that, these two divisions had difficulties. That morning, in trying to cross a waterway in front of them, the 56th Infantry Division was unable to set up a bridge close to the 62nd Infantry Division. 
as time was of the essence. A combat bridge was used by these men that belonged to the 192nd Infantry. But as these men needed to get across first, the artillery of one of these units had to wait. As the men crossed, with only one section of the artillery coming over with them, soon they were tied down by stiff Russian resistance, and the Germans had no artillery of their own, or at least not enough, to shift the enemy. But like the two overly aggressive battalions, these men were also rescued, this time by a Lieutenant Colonel Radcliffe, though many were lost to Russian guns. So lessons were learned, but men were still lost. And this was only day one of Barbarossa. On June 23rd, von Kleist's panzers got a solid start with help from the infantry. First, the 44th and 298th Infantry Divisions rushed forward and punched a hole for the 3rd Panzer Corps to dash through. This was on the Luxt Rovno axis, just below the western end of the Privet Marshes. Meanwhile, a few miles south of this, the 57th and 75th Infantry Divisions did the same thing for the 48th Panzer Corps along the Dubno-Ostrog Road. However, just behind these Panzer formations, happy to now be out charging ahead, the 14th Panzer had a different experience. They did not have an infantry unit to create a hole for them, so when they ran into the Soviet 1st Anti-Tank Brigade, near Vladimir Volinsky, they were brought up short. Trying not to panic or disappoint those to their left and right, infantry units were gathered up, and only when they outflanked the 1st Anti-Tank Brigade, forcing them back, did the 14th Panzer get to move on. Now it was chasing the 1st Brigade, who even then did not panic, but moved back in a cohesive manner. Not that all Soviet forces did this well. The Germans had already learned to mass their armor in large groups, and once one of these groups got going, it was hard to stop, which of course was the idea. As for the Russians, they either had not learned this yet or were husbanding their armor, being on the defensive as they were. The next day, June 24th, the German 4th Mechanized Corps was about to take advantage of these cautious Soviets, specifically the ones around Nemirov, just over 100 miles or 160 kilometers to the southwest of Kiev. Intelligence told the Germans that they would be going up against the lucky 71st Infantry Division's anti-tank battalion. Now was not the time to lose too many panzers, thus they set up a trap. First, the Germans figured out that they would need help in case this trap did not work, so they had infantry bicycle their way close to the town. Next, they waited. The Soviet brass could not tolerate the panzers in such proximity, so sent in their tanks. However, being overly cautious, they sent them in 10 or 20 at a time, and each time they entered the town, the Soviet tank teams quickly figured out they could not maneuver or even engage properly with all the structures blocking their view. But the Germans were already there, and thus prepared, and they easily took out the first 20 tanks. So, more Soviet tanks were sent in, and the same thing happened to them. Soon, there were 50 smoking Soviet tanks around the town, which now belonged to the Germans. Normally, an officer on the Soviet side would have figured out what was going on, and reacted. But, 
Communication was so bad, the picture of what was happening was murky at best and definitely delayed. The same thing was happening a bit further south. When the Soviet 15th mechanized fed tanks into Lieutenant General Eberhard von Mackensen's right flank, the 48th Panzer Corps was soon counting the numbers of destroyed enemy tanks in front of them. By the end of the day, von Mackensen's troops had destroyed 267 enemy tanks. The Soviets had much to learn, but they would learn. Still, it would be disjointed defenses like this and aggressiveness on Mackensen's part that would see his men and panzers be the first to enter Kiev, for which he would be awarded the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross. And this pattern of success repeated itself the next day, June 25th, further north, when the 3rd Panzer Corps pushed out the Soviet 27th Rifle Corps from Lutsk, about 300 miles or 482 kilometers due west of Kiev. And willing the battle line to remain straight, for continuity's sake, to the south of Lunsk, another element of the 3rd Panzer Corps cleared a portion of the Steyr River and there threw up a bridge, about 50 miles or 80 kilometers west of Lvov, now Lviv. Point is, Rundstedt's Army Group South was pushing on all fronts and winning, mostly. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Meanwhile, the invaders were also winning the Battle for the Skies. Above the fray was Lieutenant General Ritter von Grimes' Flieger Corps 5, and they flew 1,600 sorties in the first three days of the war, bombing 72 enemy airfields and wrecking 774 Soviet planes, all kinds. But more than that, as other Soviet forces were being rushed to the front, the German bombers and fighters were not only able to destroy and thus weaken these approaching units, but as they caused them to scatter time and again. Many suffered from mechanical breakdowns. The German infantry and panzers were being helped in more ways than they realized. And yet, the Soviets were slowly, slowly getting their act together, learning as they went, though the cost was high. 
As mentioned, the area in general was reorganized by Stalin for better command and control, the essence of focusing one's forces. Of course, this would take time to shake out, but the process had begun. Lieutenant General Kurpanov's Southwest Front ordered the 9th and 19th Mechanized Corps, a part of the 5th Army, to position themselves to attack Mackensen's left flank. Side note, mechanized versus motorized corps means that the former transports carrying the infantry were shielded for better protection, whereas the motorized were generally non-combat vehicles, like trucks, and were wheeled, which gave them trouble in the heavy rains and coming snow. So Kurpanos was left to hope that the men would arrive in relative safety and be able to deploy. If just one flank could be held up, then Mackesson may be forced to hold up the rest of his line. And if that happened, then a counterattack may take place, which, it must never be forgotten, would please Stalin. Unfortunately, as the Russians were still learning the details of modern war, this attack went in piecemeal, and so the 13th Panzer was able to chew up as they came in. Another possible counterstroke was lost. Yet, there was one bright spot. 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, east of Lansk at Kleven, the 1st Anti-Tank Brigade was able to temporarily stop the 14th Panzer. This was critical as the road led to the city of Novgorod, which Soviet plans deemed a vital defensive point. About 35 miles, or 56 kilometers, south of this fighting, near Dubno, the Soviets almost achieved something spectacular. The Soviet 15th Mechanized Division was about to engage the 11th and 16th Panzer Divisions. Suddenly, Stuka dive bombers and BF-109s appeared overhead and cut into the 15th's numbers. Even worse, its headquarters was hit, wounding its local commander, Kirpezo. Still, the two Panzer Divisions were approaching, so others stepped into needed roles, and the wounded 15th and 8th Mechanized went in. But this is where things get weird. Stalin's purges had removed many officers who knew how to handle such large formations, but now it was chaos, not helped by poor communication. Yet, as the two sides clashed, the Soviet 8th became smaller, to the point where it was manageable, according to Roskozovsky, who later described what he was told. The point is, even though the 8th had been reduced through death, the local commanders now felt more comfortable in wielding it, and soon the two panzer divisions were being held up, frustrating the German timetable. Even better, though only because of the many casualties, much of the 8th was able to get in behind the two panzer divisions, with the 15th staying in the front, as the Germans tried to figure out a workaround. The 8th had done this by splitting into two and going around each flank, and now they just needed to meet up in the rear, and the panzers would be trapped. As things stood, the two approaching pincers were only six miles or nine and a half kilometers apart. Poetic justice. Almost. Holding them up, the 16th Panzer saw their move and backed up to block their joining, which created its own localized battle, though 
It was very intense, as the Russians sought to destroy the hated invaders, while the Germans feared the very thing they were doing to the enemy. But there are moments in war, specifically modern war, where hatred is not enough to win. Organization and a focus of forces is needed, which the Soviets could not manage as communications failed them once again. In fact, Kurpanovs did not even know of this building miracle until it was all over. Thus, he was unable to assist. As for effective communication and focusing one's forces, the Germans were quite good at this, and soon, working together, the 75th Infantry, 16th Panzer, and Luftwaffe units were able to pound the 8th into retreating. Only as the 8th was pulling back, not in good order, did they re-establish contact with Korpanos, and as he had assumed the worst, only hearing bad things, he had ordered a pullback. What could have been? But whether one is killed by the Germans or shot on Stalin's orders, death is still the result. So Kurpanos ordered a desperate counterattack on June 30th, which is when his counterweight, the political commissar in in Vashkunin, said, no, I will take command this time. So he took control of the 8th Mechanized Corps' tank division and led them right into a swamp. The tanks became stuck, and the Germans systematically, coolly destroyed every single one of them. Vashkuna knew his days were numbered, so killed himself while still in that swamp. Reacting to all of this, Zhukov would later say that the fighting around Dubno was the toughest scene in the Ukraine, which is saying something. Either way, there was now a tankless hole in the Russian defense between the Soviet 5th and 6th armies, and the 1st Panzer Group sought the best way to exploit this. As for what remained of the 5th Army, its commander, Major General M.I. Potapov, pulled his men back and to the north, closer to the Pripyat or Rokitno marshes, as he guessed the Germans knew little of this area, and if they came this way, he would have the advantage of knowing the terrain. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. For another slice of poetic justice, which that phrasing will turn out to be more than apt, for all of this hard-won success of Army Group South so far, its right flank was lagging behind. This was partly the fault of von Stupelnagel's 17th Army, but also the Romanian forces, which had yet to move out. But there was the added misery for one German in particular. Besides the slower right flank, that exposed von Rundstedt's main thrust. Going back to where we started at the Schimschel, or more specifically, the bridge there that the Germans failed to capture early that morning of June 22nd, specifically the 101st Light Infantry Division, was commanded by a Major General Eric Marx, 
And yes, yours truly knows he's saying the Romanized version of that Polish city very incorrectly. But this is as close as his southern mouth can get. Anyways, ironically, it was Marx that had drawn up the Operational Draft East plan that would become Operation Barbarossa. It was his idea to divide the invading forces into three large groups, to push hard until the Vina and Dnieper line was reached, then pause for logistics, and then to push on to take Moscow, Leningrad, and the Ukraine. But here is where his life changed. Soon after the bridge was taken, later that day, and the forces moved on, Marx received several wounds to his left leg, to the point that it had to be amputated just four days into the campaign. I'm sure he did not plan for that. About 125 miles, or 201 kilometers due east of Shimshel, remember Romanized, sits Lvov, now Lviv. And there, Major General I.N. Muzichenko, commander of the 6th Soviet Army, was determined to hold that city for his country. So the Germans soon learned that not only was their right flank faltering, but they had to deal with this stubborn Russian. But even this battle had its own irony. As the Germans approached Lvov, it was only with infantry and artillery, no panzers, yet Muzichenko was protecting the city with the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th anti-tank brigades. Oh, what might have been had those units been placed further north, along the path of the 1st Panzer Group? This mistake can partially be explained by the German Signals deception units that sent out false information about their Panzer's movements. Either way, these anti-tank units, along with the help of Soviet infantry, was holding up the Germans before Lvov. Now, the German right was really affecting the overall thrust of von Rundstedt. It got to the point where his staff recommended taking a part of 1st Panzer Group to the north and having them wheel south to get in behind the city, thus trapping the troublesome defenders. But von Rundstedt knew better than to divide his main attack. Fortunately for the Germans, the impasse was solved when 9th Panzer Division, just north of Laval, broke through and was in a position to get in behind the city if ordered to. This potential threat was reported to Korpanos. More bad news. But at least he knew what was going on. So he decided to pull back to abandon the city on June 27th. On the 29th, Lvov was occupied by the 1st Mountain Division, meeting no resistance, only seeing scared civilians, and they had a right to be scared. But more on that in a moment. Kurpanos knew he could not simply pull back his forces. They would be chased and hounded by the enemy. So he ordered the 4th Mechanized Corps to counterattack. Amazingly, not only did the 4th Mechanized reach the city limits, they actually fought their way in, and soon they were fighting literally face-to-face with the enemy. In one particular clash, in a cemetery, the Germans were hiding behind headstones, moving from one to the other, as the Russians retreated from one headstone to another as they were being pushed out. Gruesome does not adequately capture this moment in history. 
As the Russians pulled back to the Stalin line, located roughly equally distant from Lvov and Kiev, the SS division Viking pursued them, but out of fear or luck, the Russian retreat went better than expected. Still, the race was on. Could the Russians get to the Stalin line and set up adequately before the fanatical SS division got there as well? Added to this, there was now a 20-mile or 32-kilometer hole in the Soviet defenses to the east of Lvov, but one catastrophe at a time. When the SS Viking Division first entered Lvov, they searched for valuables. They knew the regular troops would do this when they got there, but the SS got there first, which is when they found recently murdered German folk who lived and worked in Lvov. Questioning the locals, they found that the Soviet state police had done the deed, which makes sense from a Russian point of view. Some of these people might, after all, be spies for the Third Reich. Still, this discovery only sped up and intensified what would have happened anyways. The revenge program carried out by the Einsatzgruppen, or German death squads, but also by Ukrainian nationalists who had no love for Stalin. Further, this would be repeated in Kiev and in Odessa, but those latter killings, that would be the work of Romanians. At this point, Kurpanis had to report to the Stavka that the Southwest Front had lost 1,200 tanks, and these would not be replaced, as the men inside the tanks did not have the knowledge of repairing them, if possible whereas the Germans, obviously planning this invasion, had repair teams behind the front, bringing back to life what panzers were possible. Major General Putkin, in command of the Soviet air forces supporting Kurpanas, had lost roughly the same number of planes during this opening phase of the war. Putkin had once been hailed as a hero and innovator during the Spanish Civil War, but Stalin had to make an example of someone, and it wasn't going to be Karponos. He was fighting back. So, on July 1st, Pukin was relieved of duty and executed. Even limited as he had been, due to spotty communications, Karponos had not let the enemy get behind his main forces. Thus, there was still a chance to organize and fight back. Now, all eyes, German and Russian, went to the Stalin line. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So before I thank the latest members and those who have donated, I wanted to do something a little different. I normally don't do this, but this is important. This is special. So here I go. Some of you will know this. I did not. Um, The UK government wants to build a road tunnel under Stonehenge. Um, I think we can all agree that this is one of the most interesting archaeological and historical interests in Europe, and it would be best not to tamper with it or even take the chance of tampering with it. So I have not yet been to the UK. I hope to go one day, and certainly Stonehenge is on my list. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because um, there are groups trying to fight this, but they are currently losing in court. Um, So if you want to know anything more about it, if you maybe want to sign the petition, maybe if you wanted to donate to help with their legal 
fees because they are hiring lawyers and they are trying to fight back. You can check out all the information at Stonehenge Alliance website. If you just literally type that in, Stonehenge Alliance website, I think it either pull up directly or it will give you the link. So uh, help out if you can, at least sign the petition or at least read it and be aware of it. I'm glad Tom, one of the listeners, uh, brought this to my attention. So anything you would can do would be greatly appreciated. Now, on to the members and those who have donated. Let's see. The latest member is Nick Menzella from Alakippa, Pennsylvania. Nick, I think you moved there just to hear me say that. That's not very. That's not cool, dude. That's not cool. Uh, Lon Baldwin from Portage, Wisconsin. Thank you very much, Lon, for uh, supporting. And I'm glad Paul was able to help you get all signed up with membership. As far as donations, uh, let's see here. There's a Daniel Hess. He donated. I wrote him back. I asked him to be my Valentine. He turned me down. So, Daniel, you will be hearing from my lawyer. Anyway, and lastly, there is Riley Fry from Victoria, Australia. So again, thank you for the membership. Uh, Thank you for the donations. I really do appreciate it. Check out the Stonehenge website. And there will not be a big gap like there was for the next episode. I apologize. Uh, Things beyond my control. But we are now back on track. Take care, everyone.